Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Welcome back to the Church and Culture Podcast. The last couple of conversations have led us on, I don't know, kind of a journey of sorts. We started the year by talking about anticipated cultural issues for 2024, and one of which was just the continued fracturing of Christians, due mostly to ideological and theological incongruency. And that led us to last week's conversation, in which we outlined the six values of Mecklenburg Community Church, which is the church where um, Jim, you pastor, where I work, um, the six values that have protected us and, and guided us against that type of fracturing um, so far. And then you mentioned last week, uh, as part of that conversation, that Gosh, Christians seem to have, I don't know if you would put it this way, but like an underdeveloped skill of disagreeing agreeably with each other. And that we've also seemed to have lost sight of what is worth fracturing over and then what isn't. And I'd add, based on a handful of podcast submissions um, that we've received, uh, I hear this all the time, you know, that the idea of a true Christian is up for a debate. And, and I say that because, you know, I'll have people come to me all the time and they'll say, I'd love for you to talk about this. You know, such and such, you know, says they're a Christian, but they do, I don't know, XYZ or they support, you know, XYZ issue. How do I tell them that that's not right, that they're wrong, that they're that's not a Christian thing to do or believe? And it was interesting is that I'm not sure in all of those cases that everybody would agree with that assessment of wrongness or whether a Christian really does or cannot um, support or believe um, whatever the topic is. So. Obviously, I know we can't have an exhaustive conversation that tackles every issue, and I'm kind of hoping that we don't even need to. Instead, I'd like to pick your brain on how we might sort through Christian beliefs and practices to find, you know, where do we put a stake in the ground and call something orthodox? And then where do we need to not do that and leave room for uncertainty or mystery or or even just a variety of perspectives? So... <laughs> I don't have a good question to start off with, so maybe just you start the conversation. Uh, I guess I, maybe maybe this is a good question then. Where do, where must we agree? Like, what qualifies something as primary? Uh, we're biting off a lot today, aren't we? <laughs> let's get some. Let's get some language around our conversation. I think that would be really helpful. Some languages and definitions. First, the word orthodoxy, which simply means right thinking. Mm. It has a sister term, orthopraxy, which means right living. Uh, throughout the history of the church, hammering out what constitutes those two words has been absolutely critical. Uh, it's what led to the great councils of the church, such as the Council of Nicaea in 325, and, and which determined orthodox thinking about the nature of Jesus as being fully God and fully man. There are two other words that are critical to understand the word primary, which you raised, and the word tertiary. Uh, primary issues are essential issues, matters critical to historic Christian orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So primary that if you reject the idea, if you water down that idea, if you misrepresent that idea, it would be considered heresy. It would no longer represent the Christian faith. 
And heresy is another key word that we need to raise. It comes from the Greek word harisis, uh, which essentially means choosing for yourself over and above the apostolic tradition as found in the Bible. That's the Christian understanding of heresy. Rather than submitting to transcendent truth of the Christian faith, you make up your own truths, you make up your own beliefs, you alter or go against orthodoxy. But a tertiary or secondary issue is just that. It's secondary. Christians disagreeing on those things is not a matter of defending orthodoxy, but debating secondary points that are not essential to the message of the Christian faith. So let me see if I can add all that up. First, so when it comes to what we understand to be the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, we want there to be unity. There are certain things involved in being a Christian church, certain beliefs and convictions and doctrines. Uh, if you cease to hold to those beliefs, you cease to be Christian. Uh, but having said that, and, and you have to be able to say that, because to say that everything is Christian is to say that nothing is Christian. I mean, you, there, there, there is a def, there's a defined nature, a defined body of doctrine related to the Christian faith that is considered historic Christian orthodoxy. But having said that, on the non-essential beliefs, we want there to be liberty or freedom. Paul talks about this uh, uh, in the 14th chapter of Romans. He tells us not to pass judgment on other people over disputable matters. And then he goes on to say that whatever you believe about these disputable matters, meaning those things not central to the Christian faith or in direct conflict with the central core of the Christian faith, he says, keep it to yourself. Uh, and quite frankly, a lot more falls under that category than we may want to admit. Uh, for example, think about the various views about the unfolding of the end times. You know, there are folks who are premillennial, nonmillennial, and postmillennial, and people, you know, as this often joke, don't know how many L's are in the word millennial. Uh, Christians have disagreed about various aspects of the role of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, styles of worship, maybe the role of women in ministry, the nature of predestination, and more. But most would agree those are tertiary. They're not primary. Primary issues involve revolve around such things as the person and work of Jesus, uh, the nature of God, the inspiration and authority of Scripture, uh, which is why creeds were created, to state definitively what the primary issues are, to spell out the exact nature of historic Christian orthodoxy. And the creeds were, of course, simply distillations of apostolic teaching as found in Scripture. The same is true of orthopraxis, there are primary and tertiary issues there as well. Uh, primary issues would historically um, involve the sanctity of marriage uh, and something like adultery as being condemned. Uh, that would be considered primary. Uh, a tertiary issue would be something like uh, drinking. Uh, for example, the Bible states clearly that you shouldn't give yourself over to habitual drunkenness. That's to be avoided, and we unite on that teaching But because it's clearly in the Bible. But how we live our lives in order to honor that command can differ quite widely. Some believe it's best to abstain completely, and that's fine. Uh, others feel free to have wine with, you know, every meal, you know, every dinner, every day, uh, using their freedom with discretion and discipline. So in the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. And as famously added, in all things, and this is critical, we have charity, which is just another word for love. So on tertiary issues, uh, we have made the decision to agree we should make the decision to agree, to disagree, agreeably. Hmm. 
I think what might surprise many of our listeners is how little you put in, not that it is little, but how little you put into the primary category based on the headlines of what's dividing churches. Like in some ways, it's kind of comforting because it seems like we're mostly in agreement about what truly matters in terms of, well, uh, maybe that even is an overstatement. I'm not sure. But, but, but it's also incredibly disappointing that what is often dividing us are things that do not nearly matter as much. You know, these secondary or tertiary issues. So let's talk about some of those things. Like, what do you think are the uh, of the secondary or, as you said, ter- tertiary issues? What do you see the church most in a dis- in disagreement about right now? Let me let me be as clear on this as I as I can be. Um, and I'm getting as 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 time goes on and culture is on its course, I'm getting less and less. Um, I want you, there comes a time to almost take the, the gloves off mm-hmm. and to talk about things in such a way that we, we just have, there's no ambiguity about it. Um, we have taken political and ideological divides and elevated them to the level of primary theological issues that have become the test of orthodoxy and fellowship. That's heresy. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be condemned. And it is greatly distorting the Christian faith both within the Christian church and for those who are looking out at it. Uh, we've replaced denominationalism with tribalism. We've replayed, replaced creeds with political platforms. Good and evil are no longer about the human heart. They're about groups, ideological groups, us versus them, good guys versus bad guys. Morality is not about personal conduct, but rather where you are on a political spectrum, which has led to great divides within the Christian faith. It's as if suddenly we see the enemy as those who are not only outside of the church, which we shouldn't have done to begin with, seems the enemy, but now we're seeing the enemy as almost primarily within the church as well, inside the church. We've made certain values and worldviews and identities of focus in such a way that the distinctive message of the Christian faith itself is just becoming lost. And this is of great concern to me. Uh, We talk about the rise of the nuns. We talk about the great de-churching of America. What we haven't, I think, owned are fully are all the reasons for that. Uh, we lament it, but we just kind of kind of blame a secular society or something as if it's if the fingers don't point back at us. Uh, but Christians are quite f- frankly perceived as worse than the rest of the world when it comes to basic civility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once read an editorial in Christianity Today magazine some years ago, and it's it's it, it was prescient in its nature, even though it was about the times of that time about. Uh, how no attribute of civilized life seems more under attack than civility. And people who call themselves Christians are among the worst. David Aikman was the author, and he, 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 was, he, he talked about how Christians have, have just turned themselves into self-appointed attack dogs of Christendom, uh, determined to, to savage not just opponents of Christianity, but fellow believers of whose positions they disagree. And he talked about how a troll through the internet reveals websites so drenched in sarcasm and animosity that someone who is an agnostic or a follower of another faith tradition interested in perhaps examining what it means to become a Christian would would simply be permanently disillusioned and completely repulsed by it. And that that was written before the pandemic. Uh, And you know how much worse it's gotten since then. 
it reminds me of something Francis Schaeffer observed toward the end of his life. And if you know much about Schaeffer, you know that this was on his very much filled his last days, was concerned about unity of the church. He had not always practiced that particularly well, was involved in several divisions of his own, but toward the end, it, it, it captured him. And he said, he talked about Christians, how they rush in, being very, very uh, pleased when they found other people's mistakes. And they built themselves up by tearing other people down. And he talked about how we love the smell of blood. We love the smell of the arena. We love the smell of the fight. Well, we may be pleased with that, but we're not being followers of Jesus. Um, here's how I recently read uh, it put. He sa it said that, and I thought this was really interesting, about how Christians are discipled today primarily by society. And it talked about how when Christians are discipled primarily by society, inevitably, what they do is they look to scriptures for affirmation of their chosen habits and behaviors and political views. But if the Bible is the word of God, God ought to be the one interrogating us on those things. So now we're plagued with tertiary issues and ideological uh, issues being promoted to primary issues of Christian orthodoxy. And so now, as you mentioned, uh, it's things like the legitimacy of our election system, the question of how or even whether to confront racism in our society, whether to wear masks during a lethal pandemic, uh, the morality of vaccines, and on it goes. And this is largely being driven by fear. Uh, there are Christians who fear they're losing their country, fear they're losing their power, losing their place, losing their influence. And that siege mentality is, is often used as an excuse for a lot of bad behavior. Um, whether that's true or not, that's, that's this big siege and we're losing everything, whether that's true or not is another conversation. And even if it is true, uh, the way Christians should respond to it is another conversation. Mm -hmm. But it is creating enormous divides that are unlike anything the church has, has uh, seen before, certainly in my lifetime. And here's the essence. There's a lot of Christians who believe that they are engaging in a battle by promoting a political platform. And they treat the political battle as if it's the kingdom of God that is at stake. Mm -hmm. But of course, the kingdom of God is not at stake at all. Uh, and by the way, a really good book that just came out on the divides within Christendom that have erupted in recent years is by a journalist named Tim Alberta. It's called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. And we'll put it in the show notes, but it's 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 a really one of the better books out there. And um in terms of, of the divides that are happening and really what's behind these divides. But it's it's very sad, very sad. Hmm. And you would think we would know better. Like the Bible gives us an incredible case study of what it looks like to add unnecessary barriers or practices to God's community. I mean, you might even say that Jesus made so many waves because not the because of how he refused to accept the extra requirements that were added on by religious leaders. He was so much harsher towards those inside God's community or those claiming to be inside God's community than those outside. And yet here we are thousands of years later, still doing the exact same thing. So it just, as I sit there and I know I'm a part of the problem too, but I just can't help but ask, ask, the church, ask myself, like, why do we keep doing this? Why are we trying to make it harder to be a Christian? What do you think? 
It is legalism. I mean, I think you, you put your you put your finger on it, and I think that that's been the bane of things all along. And why Jesus was so controversial was because he came in embracing the law of God written on our hearts, but not legalism. You know, when um, the the it was really interesting that when you got to the time of Jesus, I wish we could have a long conversation about the law, you know, in the Old Testament, the Torah and the role of that and everything. But let's see if we can fast forward to the Old Testament, just rushed into Jesus at the risk of truncating the story. But the idea of Torah not only meant the Old Testament scriptures by the time you got to Jesus, uh, which was the written law, but uh, uh, something had happened over time. Uh, the law was added to. Um, professional religious establishment figures decided that the law needed laws. Uh, and so to the written law, they added what was known as the oral law as well, the unwritten law. The oral law is sometimes referred to as the tradition of the elders. And the people who brokered in these additions to the law were known as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were very religious, considered to be the holiest people of their day. And what they had done, and, and you've heard me talk about this before, and we've talked about it before, that they had... Uh, taken the Old Testament and calculated that it contained um, 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And what it took to just distill that, I would never want to engage in my life, but they did. And they had vowed to obey every single one of those. And just to make sure they didn't break one of those rules, they made rules about the rules and they made laws about the laws. In fact, they came up with over 1,500 additions. And that was the oral law that they added to wrap around the written law. And so, uh, for example, to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, which was the written law, they refused to even say God's name, even in honor and respect, worship or prayer to avoid committing adultery. They would lower their heads whenever they passed a woman so that they wouldn't even look at her because if they did, they might lust, which is why the most holy of all were known as bleeding Pharisees because they were lowering their heads so much. They were walking into walls and pillars and things like that. And so they would bleed. And that was another mark of holiness. When they read they would um, that they should rest on the Sabbath and not work, they decided they had to figure out how many steps it would take to calculate work. And so for whatever reason, they calculated that anything beyond 50 steps on the Sabbath was work and therefore violated the law. They also decided that on holy days, a person could eat, but they could not cook. You could bandage a wounded person, but you couldn't apply medicine. Uh, if you were a woman, you couldn't look in the mirror because if you looked in the mirror, you might see a gray hair. And if you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out. And plucking out a gray hair on the Sabbath was considered work and you couldn't work on that day. Jesus came into all of this. And there were so many more illustrations and said, um, wow, um, I didn't come to abolish the law. You know, <laughs> I want to uphold it. I want to see it front and center in everybody's life. But uh, I did come to fulfill it. And to fulfill something means that you make it fully known, you complete it, you bring it to its goal. And he made this incredible claim that he was the end, the crowning completion of God's revelation of the human race, that his teaching, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection fulfilled or brought to, com to completion. What God had revealed up to that point as recorded in the Old Testament, every doctrine, every prophecy, every ceremonial system, every sacrifice, every ethic in Jesus, it was all made complete. It finally crushed the finish line that Jesus, I mean, that God had intended all along, which obviously helps make sense of a lot of the Old Testament. Have you ever scratched your head over certain things? This obviously helps clear it up. So everything God said stands, but our relationship to it has changed. 
all that the law and the prophets said about God and taught about God and stood for about God and, and came to its full and deepest meaning, its clearest picture when God became flesh and walked the earth in the person of Jesus. So we read the Old Testament through the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus. We look at his life and we see the law and the prophets come alive. We see how God um, wanted all the, um, had said, brought to bear on a life fulfilled. Uh, which helps us see how Jesus could both support the law and also condemn the people who were screwing it up in terms of how applying it. He was so critical of the oral law, uh, the traditions and teachings of the elders that had built up around what God had originally given. He, he hated the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had made up rule after rule after rule after rule after rule based on the law. They had made it clear uh, it was never intended to be. They had, they had made it what it was never intended to be. And which was something heavy and binding and burdensome and and weighty instead of something light and free and liberating, uh, designed to show us true north. They they were people who were into the letter of the law, but not its spirit. They had made it this legalistic set of do's and don'ts rather than something that directed you to a life with and for God. And Jesus, I, I hated it. He despised it, loathed it, but he loved and lived. The law itself, the written law, and its full spirit and its full principle. In fact, his life was the perfect picture of fulfilling it. Because the law is God and God is the law. Well, um, uh, it's it's very important that we really do see that Jesus initiated this new day, this new era, um, where the law would no longer be the guiding principle for the kingdom of God, not because it wasn't valid, but because it had been fulfilled. And he moved it fully and finally away from its external legalistic base to its internal spiritual base, which was God's plan all along. Uh, that's why when asked to summarize the law, Jesus was able to do it very succinctly. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And you can boil that down even further. Love God, love people. Um, that's the law. That's it. Which makes sense out of when Jesus said that our righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. If you don't do better he said, then the legalists, the, 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 the law keepers, the rule followers, you won't even catch a glimpse of, of heaven. He didn't mean get sucked up into outdoing them, you know, like maybe taking 49 steps instead of 50 steps on the Sabbath, or instead of lowering your head when women pass, you should just move into the desert and become a monk or something. Um, he wasn't saying that people should exceed righteousness and obedience and holiness in degree, you know, do more, but to get past their level in kind. Uh, to be different spiritually altogether. Well, to get to your question, I'm sorry I didn't kind of chase that little. It's just so easy to fall into a legalistic set of rules of do's and don'ts and regulations to try and appear spiritual before God and before others. And it's very alluring to care more about appearance and how reputation is perceived than what's really going on inside our lives and our hearts and our attitudes. Uh, it's just easier to think like a Pharisee, to make our spiritual lives about how we look or how we conform so that we listen to the right radio stations and we talk in spiritual buzz talk and we we follow extraneous moral codes. We we vote the right party. We, we you know, we, we, we wear certain Christian messages on our shirts or on our bracelets and we participate in certain activities and we abstain from various things and we think we're being spiritual or engaging in a personal relationship with God. And some of it may all be well and good, but um, it's what we do, but it's not who we are. Because spirituality is not about religion, it's about a relationship. The truly spiritual life, uh, the one that really lives by the law, goes beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, beyond the spirituality of identity or boundary markers, beyond do's and don'ts. Now, you asked 
and I'll say this and shut up. <laughs> so why are we doing it? Hmm. You know, and, and that that's always been a very easy thing for me to answer. That's mm-hmm. never that's never puzzled me. Uh, and it's because legalism is easier than righteousness. Hmm. It's just easier. Do's and don'ts are easier to follow than a transformed heart. If I can check some boxes and be done for the day and it doesn't matter what's going on inside of me or my thoughts, my attitudes, um, how I treat others. Uh, if I can reduce my faith to tribalism and ideology, us against them, railing against whatever I think is wrong, reducing everything to ideology, platform and politics uh, is easier than loving my neighbor or caring for the poor. Yeah. We're added to that is a layer of you know, just how easily we succumb to our own self-deception and how we don't even recognize within ourselves that that's what we're falling to. I was just reading in the Psalms this morning of David asking God, he said, examine my heart and mind, like not examine my practices, because to your point, that's an easier thing, you know, but it's asking God to examine your heart and your mind, which is so much more revealing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I want to go back to something that you said earlier. You were talking about, you know, even if if you do agree and you can find a biblical basis for what somebody believes or supports or does um, isn't true to the Christian faith, that it, it also equally matters how you talk about that or how you respond. So I want to talk about how to deal with disagreement. Let's start with a primary issue. Like let's say that you know one of your friends who, who does claim to be a Christian says something like, well, you know, all religions basically say the same thing. So it doesn't really matter if you believe in Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha. You just have to believe in God. Okay. Do you say something? Do you not say something? If you do say something, what do you say? Yeah. Well, if you're talking Christian to Christian or even Christian non-Christian, yeah, in that particular case, yes, I would absolutely engage it because it isn't that is not, you just suggested it's not a tertiary right. or a secondary issue. It's one that lies at the heart of the Christian faith the scandal of the Christian faith, which is that there's only one way. The idea they are espousing is a very common one, though. It's like it's that searching for God is like climbing a mountain, since everyone knows that there's not just one way to climb a mountain. Mountains are way too big for that. There must be any number of paths that can be taken. So we tend to look at all the ideas about God running around the landscape among throughout all the religions of the world as just different paths up the mountain. So where does that leave you? Well, if you buy into that, then you're free to choose. Take your pick from among the countless philosophies and worldviews littering our cultural landscape. Why? Because all roads lead to God. All spiritual paths are equally legitimate. Uh, It doesn't really matter what you believe, who you believe, what or how you worship. The only problem is that Christianity doesn't play well in that sandbox. Um, And it happened uh, at all. Jesus, as I mentioned, spoke directly to this idea. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's scandalous particularity. Mm -hmm. And he makes it clear that there is a Father God, and second, there's only one way to that Father God, and it's through him. And he was very careful with his language, not a way, a truth, a life, the way, the truth, the life. Uh, And no one can enter into a full relationship with God apart from him. No one. That was so. That was as politically incorrect then as it is now, mm-hmm. uh, but it has marked Christianity from the beginning. Is now is Christianity saying that every other religion is just completely wrong? No. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that if you're a Christian, you can you don't have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all the way through. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all the other religions, even the queerest ones, uh, might contain at least some hint of the truth. And he goes on to suggest to think of it in terms of arithmetic. There's only one and one right answer to two plus two, and that's four. But if you were to answer six, that'd be a lot closer than answering 37. 
while there's only one right answer, some answers are closer to being right than others. But that's really not all. If all truth is God's truth, then it remains truth wherever I find it. And so as we've talked about in previous podcasts about Buddhism and about Eastern religions, which we can put in the footnotes, show notes, um, I can appreciate the truth in much of, for example, Buddhism's ideas or its moral stances. But just because there may be some goodness and truth in other places doesn't mean I've found an equally legitimate way to God. Mm. And not only that, the full teaching of that religion may entail a road that is heading in the totally a totally different direction. Stick with the example of Buddhism. While there is some common ground between Buddhism and Christianity, there are enormous tension points. Uh, the Dalai Lama himself has stated very publicly that the central doctrines of Buddhism and the central doctrines of Christianity are absolutely incompatible. He's been quite open to the fact that you cannot be a Buddhist Christian and you cannot be a Christian Buddhist. And he's right. And um, Christianity believes in a personal God. Buddhism doesn't even believe in a higher being. Buddhism is essentially, if you studied it, an atheistic religion. That is a divide that is almost insurmountable uh, or simply insurmountable. Not almost. It is insurmountable. Uh, that's not two different ways up the mountain. Those are different places on the map. Uh, this is true when you compare Christianity to the other major world religions as well. Christians believe there's one God. Hindus believe there are millions. Christian based embrace Jesus as God himself in human form. Muslims don't even put Jesus at the top of the prophet food chain, much less the savior of the world. Whenever you have divisions like that, you have two options. And this is really important. And this is kind of like logic and philosophy 101 that is important to remind ourselves of. When you have divisions like that, you can you only have two options. You can either say that somebody is right in that particular area or and everybody else is wrong. Or you can say that everyone is wrong. But what you can't say is that everybody is right. Mm -hmm. That it's all the same path, the same idea, the same God. That would be intellectually confused at best and, and dishonest at worst. And the areas of disagreement are not trivial in nature. They deal with the very existence of God. And if he does exist, how we enter into a relationship with that God, not to mention the identity of a person like Jesus. Hmm. Okay, let's get into some of the tougher issues. I'm going to, let's do this. I'll give you a few scenarios, things I've heard, and then I'm going to give you the courtesy of choosing which ones you want to address. So I've heard things like, and it always starts like this. My friend says he's a Christian or she's a Christian, but... Here's a few scenarios, but he voted for fill in the blank or, but she believes in same sex marriage or, but he's pro-choice or, but she smokes or, but he doesn't go to church. It goes on and on. So pick one or two of those and give us a primer on when to say something, when not to say something. And yeah, what we might say. Let's go back to where we started okay. and put whatever scenario you might have through a test. First, is it a matter of orthodoxy or orthopraxy, meaning Christian belief or Christian practice or morality, historic Christian belief, historic Christian morality as rooted in the scriptures? Second, within those categories, is it primary or tertiary? If it doesn't fall into orthodoxy or orthopraxy, it's not worth engaging, you know, except for intellectual gymnastics and fun. If it does, but it's not primary, but tertiary, then I would limit the amount of energy you put into it with them. But if it is a matter of orthodoxy and it is a primary and it is primary in nature, then you have to take a stand as a Christian. You can't not. 
lovingly engage them because it matters and they matter and the gospel matters and truth matters and we're not ashamed of the gospel. I would also potentially engage if they are taking a matter that isn't orthodoxy or true orthopraxy or they've taken something tertiary and they're elevating it to the level of primary orthodoxy and the test of what it means to be a Christian. I would engage that as well because that does as much harm. I mean, that's again, as I mentioned, it's a form of heresy because you, what you're doing is you're distorting the gospel. You're saying this is orthodoxy when it has nothing to do with orthodoxy at all. It's an ideological stance. It might be political in nature or something. And so we, we can't we can't have that. that. That's what the Pharisees did and kept adding to what it meant to be you know, of the law. But but let me let me end having said that, which is, you know, kind of just goes back to our, our, our basic roadmap and vocabulary. I think all Christians right now need a stiff dose of the letter of James in the New Testament. If I had to give an assignment to Christians in our modern world, it would be to live with James for a year, which talks so much about the use of our tongues and our interaction with fellow Christians, mm -hmm. specifically putting some controls on our speech. And here's something to think about. When you say, do I engage, do I engage? Well, I already kind of said, I mean, I would engage over this, I wouldn't engage over that. I mean, you know, just, but but here's, here's, let's go back to civility. <laughs> Before you say something, ask yourself, put yourself through some filters. Here's some filters. First, ask yourself, is what I'm going to say true? If you know it's not, or if you're not sure, or if it's just rumor, or if it's second or third hand, uh, don't say it. Don't pass it along, because it doesn't pass the truth test. Uh, second, is what I'm going to say helpful? Uh, because even if it passes the truth filter, meaning it really is true, doesn't mean it's helpful to say it. In other words, is what I'm going to say encouraging? Does it build people up? I mean, our words should heal and bring life and benefit those who listen. Uh, I know a, a lot of things about people that are true, but if I were to say them or repeat them or pass them on, it would be sin. Uh, because there'd be no point in doing it except to tear them down, assassinate their character, or needlessly point out sin in their life, which I might add, we all have plenty of ourselves to go around, to focus on. Truth itself is not enough. It has to pass the why test. Um, you know, so why would I say this? What is what is my agenda? Am I trying to hurt or am I trying to help? Am I trying to build up or just arouse suspicion? A third filter is is what I'm going to say being said to the right person. This one I think is interesting, meaning am, am, I, am, I, am I talking to who I should be talking to? Let's say you've got an issue with someone and should you talk about that with six other people? Three other people? Uh, one other person? No, no, and no. <laughs> uh, biblically, there's only one person you should talk to about it and that's the person you have the issue with. And if you shoot back and say, well, I was just getting some counsel beforehand. Okay, you've now gone to counsel with 10 different people. Stop it. <laughs> you need to talk to that person and that person alone. Now, let's say you've done that and you've gone to them. You've tried to work some things out. Should you then go to another person later that day to talk about what you talked about with that person? Uh, you didn't talk to anyone on the front end, but you plan on having a lot of fun on the back end because you feel like you did the right thing. And now you've got a license to talk about it. Oh, no, no, no. Um, it, that doesn't pass a sniff test and it shouldn't pass it. Um, now I know it, it sounds like I'm taking all the fun out of everything, but, uh, but it's going to get less fun because here's another filter is what I'm going to say. Loving it, you know, it checks all the other boxes, but more 
if you're seeking to be loving towards someone, you obviously wouldn't say something that wasn't true. If you're seeking to be loving towards someone, you wouldn't say anything that wasn't helpful. If you're trying to be loving to someone, you wouldn't say anything that about them behind their back. But it's still a good separate filter because it also speaks to how you say things. Will it be gracious? Will it be humble? Will it give the other person the benefit of the doubt? Uh, or will it be accusational, judgmental, sanctimonious, and mean-spirited? The call on our life is to love God and to love people. If you love God, but you don't love people, then something is wrong with the loving God part. You think about it this way, and, and, and I, this, is, this is confession. <laughs> um, every person you have, because I've failed this so often, and I have to remind myself of it so often, every person you've ever locked eyes with matters to God. Hmm. When I start to say something unloving, uh, or I even think something unloving, I need to stop and catch myself and say, what am I doing? And here's, here's what I say to myself. I remind myself, God is foolish over that person. He's foolish over that person. Uh, that's his son or that's his daughter. <laughs> uh, that's his child. And I'm being completely ungracious towards someone that he loves, which ought to make me a little nervous. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't matter how frustrated I might be with them. He's crazy about them. And I need to interact with them the way God would want me to interact with them. Okay. And interact with them the way that God would want me to interact with someone that he's crazy about. And he's watching. Or think about it this way. It would be like someone coming to me and saying, Jim, I love your teaching. Uh, I love you as a pastor. I've really appreciated some of your writings. I just wanted you to know that. And then they walk away from me and they run into one of my children and just tear them down without grace or mercy or treat them in a ruthless, terrible way. As if somehow they can be fine with me, but mm -hmm. cruel to one of my children or grandchildren or someone else that I love. Uh, that they can praise me, but condemn my child. Uh, hmm. As a father, I can tell you that's not, that does not make me happy. <laughs> uh, so do you see how offensive that would be to me mm. and how it would make their words about me meaningless? Mm. Uh, that's what we can do with God. Uh, we praise him and then we curse his children, <laughs> but it's even more toxic than that. I mean, to take it within the family of, of the Christian faith. Um, if you're a Christ follower, uh, we're talking about our brothers and we're talking about our sisters and mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. We're part of his close-knit family of faith. Uh, the new community where the right use of the tongue should be seen by the world. This is a place where love and grace should flow the most freely. If you read James and how he takes Christians to the woodshed, and he does, just takes them to the woodshed. He essentially says, you're worse than those who don't follow Christ. People outside the church are nicer to each other than you are to each other inside the church. It's scathing. So maybe we should add one last filter, which is just learn to keep our mouth shut. Yeah. Really, because the more we talk, the more we sin. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not made up. That's the truth. Proverbs 10.19. <laughs> Memorize Proverbs 10.19. <laughs> Too much talk leads to sin. And then he goes on to say, be sensible. And keep your mouth shut. And that may be the most important thing of all when Christians disagree with each other. Mm. 
Well, and I keep going back to what you said earlier. I don't know if you're quoting Schaefer here, but when you're talking about how Christians are being discipled by society, and I think that that's very um, informative in terms of how we learn how to disagree agreeably, because yeah, we don't have a great um, we don't have great examples of that in society. Well, society, of course. Right, you're going to find a lot of permission. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And society affirms being nasty and cutting and snarky and sarcastic and cruel and and playing fast and loose with the truth. I mean, being discipled by society is an absolutely terrifying thought because society because you're being discipled by the by the the God of this world. If you're being Mm -hmm. discipled by society, and we know who that is. Yeah. So it's almost amazing just to consider, like, even before going through, you know, some of the litmus tests that you just went through, like. Have you spent time with God about this? I mean, I just find so often I can be so outraged about something and then re- and ready to just say something to someone. And then you just sit before God and, you know, invite his Holy Spirit, you know, say what David said, examine my heart, examine my mind, and then also consider how God is so gracious and patient with us. And then all of a sudden it's like, I don't, I do not need to say anything. I just need to look at my own life and, and keep my yeah. mouth. So interesting. I know you want to wrap this up. But it's like, you know, like I will, I will die on the hill of defending Jesus. People say he doesn't need defending. I, I, I know, but you know what I'm trying to say? I'll die on the hill of standing for Jesus in the midst of a fallen world. I'll die on the hill of defending his church. I'll die on the hill, defending the family of God. And, uh, and obviously my own family. And, you know, but there's, but, you know, when, when, but uh, when we start substituting things in with those things that we'll die for and then also hurt others over, yeah, yeah, we need to be careful. Mm. Well, this was a great conversation. Thanks for taking this on. We could have talked for, gosh, three times as long on this, but I think again, to my point earlier, I, I think we didn't need to. I think that this is going to be a really helpful framework. Um, a lot of the things that you talk through, things to consider before you say something, and even if you do how you say it, I have a feeling we're going to refer back to this episode a good number of times in the future. So thank you guys for tuning in, and we'll catch you again next week.